The content you are about to hear might be triggering for some people, so please take care. Last time on Undiscussable. That is what power over is about. Once you have in a position of power, I mean, you have to also work to, to keep that power. And that's why you also find ways of putting others in positions of less power. And that's, of course, what then becomes abusive. When societies go through quite rapid change, there, there's also like an increase in violence against women. Almost as a kind of way in which the, the sort of the next stage of society to make sure it's it's yet again patriarchal. You do become horrible because you think, well, that person was horrible. I've got no genes. I'm horrible. So you become horrible as a mask for your fear. Just as a child who hasn't been shown books won't have learnt to read, a child who hasn't been shown how to manage their feelings won't know how to do that. I've got the worst cold ever, as you can probably hear. Um, sniffing really bad, <laughs> so I'm going to sound great today. I'm just about to head to a breakfast and a panel um, all about violence against women and girls. I was in New York and had been invited to the United Nations headquarters. I've got like a two minute talk and then we actually break off into different dialogues and then reconvene for the presentation discussion really. So I'm really excited about it and um, hoping I can contribute quite a lot. Uh, I'm also thinking about how I can maybe challenge the way we talk about it. Um, the fact that this is all labelled as violence rather than it's not really seen as abuse and straight away that's to me um, aiding the stereotype that already exists so I'm just walking um, talking really fast because I'm trying to get there quickly and a bit out of breath so I'm just walking down the side of the UN building it's got um, every flag imaginable. I was there as part of a wider community from the likes of the government to NGOs and we were there to exchange experiences and perspectives on how to achieve the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. <laughs> I keep putting it back in my back. <laughs> I sat around a room on long rectangular tables that all faced inward so everyone could see everyone. Each place had a microphone, you know the ones with a bendy arm, and a name card. Mine said, Charlie Webster, broadcaster and advocate. I wasn't allowed to record inside. It was a closed shop. So once I got back to my hotel, I made some audio notes for myself. The kind of conversation I was very interested in about um, prevention and um, only 2% of any conversations at the moment around uh, this topic is about prevention which is really quite sad um, and um, there was a conversation about um, some data that's collected around the root cause of why it actually happens, why domestic abuse, sexual abuse happens. I mean, they talked about it in the context of violence against women and girls, um, but they spoke about how actually their data that they've collected around the root cause was that basically men who witnessed violence are much more likely to commit violence, so it's intergenerational violence. It frustrated me listening to this, not because of the data, which was true, but it was the way it was presented and by leaders in this field. Men 
who witnessed violence growing up. Well, they weren't. They were children. And as soon as we describe them as men, it makes it seem like they had a choice. What if you're a boy brought up in it? Does that mean that that you don't have the same help or the same compassion? Um, You know, because the young boys are the same victims as young girls. You know, it's not about gender. They were children. And actually, if we helped child victims of sexual abuse and domestic abuse, then that's how we would help prevent it. It made me think of Paul. At five years old, he was already being sexually, physically and emotionally abused. He wasn't a man. He was an innocent child that needed and still needs help to be able to come to terms with what was done to him by the very person who was supposed to lead by example, his dad. The global goal of the UN is called Goal 5, it's gender equality, but it's also to end all forms of violence against women and girls by 2030. I just wonder if that includes also, you know, child sexual abuse. And for boys as well, or men that are raped, or men that are abused in the home. It's just an interesting... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just kind of working out my own thoughts in a sense. Surely suffering and abuse is suffering and abuse. It's wrong, full stop. And is it not the case that to prevent abuse, we need to help both girls and boys, and not just see girls as victims and boys as perpetrators? If not, then where did David from episode one, Daniel, Abel, Simon from episode two, and Paul, who we spoke to in episode three, fit in? I wanted to investigate this further. I flew back to the UK the next morning with my stinking cold and I searched and searched for somebody or an organisation that was working with boys in a positive way. I couldn't find anything under the government's policy. I did, however, find a project in London as part of the Safer London charity that worked with young boys who displayed harmful behaviours. Realistically, we'll accept kind of a referral from anyone if it meets the criteria. So if it's a young person aged 11 to 18 and they're showing some um, harmful or inappropriate sexualised behaviour. But the main avenues it comes through is through schools. So we get lots of direct referrals from schools. So when we're based in a borough, one of our main kind of things to get a foundation for the programme is to go out to schools and meet with safeguarding leads and introduce the programme because we haven't been to a school yet where there isn't some need for us. So schools is a big avenue for referrals. Also doing a lot of joint work with youth offending services because they come across a lot of young men that might have been referred for these behaviours. Social care, so if they're looked after children or if they're on child in need plan or child protection plans, they might be referred to as social workers. I wondered if Zach Hinkson could help bring some clarity. You may remember his voice right at the beginning of episode one. He's the team leader. The problem is this project is only in London. And even worse, it is only in two boroughs of London, Brent and Croydon. There are 32 boroughs in London and 69 cities in the UK. They were targeted because they're boroughs that we felt like the support was needed. And they're both quite large boroughs, both with quite um, a high proportion of young people, especially young people that are involved in crime and where these behaviours are shown. So they weren't picked randomly. I asked Zach to describe what kind of behaviours he's talking about. I think the best way to look at harmful sexual behaviour that we see is on a spectrum. So you get the lower end, which is, like I said, the 
um, a lot of the stuff they come through schools generally so it's generally kind of maybe the younger years so maybe year seven to year nine and it's engaging in what they might just call kind of classroom disruption so they're they're saying sexually inappropriate things they might be yelling stuff like penis they might be making jokes about sex or even discussing or when discussing gender roles they have a very sexist view and to them they don't see anything wrong with it they've never had those discussions with an adult they're just learning from what's around them so they deem it's appropriate for a girl to be like this and a boy must be like this so when we get those referrals although we, it's kind of the the lower end of it it still requires a lot of work with them and it's about unteaching them some of these problematic or harmful views that they have and reteaching them on how it's best to do it you know you just said it's the lower end of it but isn't that how it starts anyway so surely there should be like that intervention at the lower end yeah of course and that's why I think sometimes you might have an influx of referrals that are at the higher end and they're really really harmful and there's maybe a string of victims but equally we can't ignore those lower ends because if we do then it's just going to be in five years time they're going to be doing these really harmful things and I think it does often get get missed and we use a tool called um, pyramid of sexism I don't know if you've seen it but Mm. it kind of describes how at the top of the pyramid of sexism is things like rape and murder and down the bottom is this lad banter and just making jokes and if we deem it's acceptable at that level then it is just going to be a building block and by the time we get to the top we're saying oh how did these things happen well actually we know how they happened because when that young person was 11 we were fine with them saying that girls have to do this and it, if a boy asks a girl for sex he should get sex we we thought that was just lad banter we we deemed it appropriate but then when that young person has then gone on to commit a rape five years later we're asking how did it get to it well there was a clear sign so yeah it's it's equally important that we are working with them on the early intervention level as well zach said there was no blueprint for the program as it's all dependent on the young person they're working with and their learning style apart from one constant thread one of the key things that we do look at in all our interventions is healthy relationships, um, but equally looking at, looking at unhealthy relationships because it's so common that you might ask them, what's an unhealthy relationship? And they say, oh, you don't hit your partner. And to them, as long as there's no physical violence within that relationship, it's healthy. It's, it's amazing. But they, they haven't even begun to discuss things like power and control within a relationship. So it's, that's one of the big things that we look at within healthy relationships because Ultimately, if they don't understand a healthy relationship, they're never going to be able to grasp. And it's not their fault because lots of them haven't grown up in an environment where they've even seen a relationship. They might be growing up in a single parent household, so they haven't even seen that dynamic. So they are just learning as they go. The programme lasts for around six months and then steps are put in place for onward support. I might just be downstepped and say that actually, if they are still in education, talking with their school and saying, look, he's made amazing progress in these six months. But if you don't put steps in place within the school... So I don't know if it's a support network for the young men to sit and discuss these things or having more conversation like this in class with teachers present so they can actually share these views, the behaviours are going to go back. But I think that in those six months, that's when we can get them to that stage. I wanted to explore this further with Zach. I felt like this was the key toward preventing domestic abuse and so many other issues too, like mental health in young men and school exclusions. Perpetrators surely don't just become perpetrators from nowhere. Kids don't just display harmful behaviours for no reason. I think that that's, honestly, that's probably the hardest thing to get them to understand and to get other professionals to understand. Because even when we get the referrals, it, it's crazy the language used with it sometimes. They describe these young men, and equally you see it with the young women that are victims to these things, but you see it with these young men, they're just describing them as kind of these, these monsters that have gone and done these horrible things 
and no one's looked at why they're doing these things and there hasn't been one case and we've worked with hundreds of young people hasn't been one case where this young man has perpetrated this thing without something happening to him so going back to the data from the un around being brought up in violence then wouldn't it make obvious sense to put effort and resource into our next generation not only because they quite frankly deserve help as victims but because this inevitably would start breaking down the cycle of domestic abuse so lots of them have been victims themselves and the professionals don't get that they kind of just look at it as but how could he be a victim he's, he's a he's a man what do you mean how could he be a victim and equally but they're children still under 18 exactly, I know yes. we're describing them as young men but I still believe yeah, that they, they, they are yeah, children yeah. 11 to 18 yeah. years old they're, they're children yeah, yeah. They're, they're victims mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. of their own upbringing yeah. and conditioning around them yeah yeah and but I, I feel like that view isn't shared often by a lot of professionals and although I mean I've done a lot of the same training as them so I, I'm, I'm baffed how they didn't get that message but they, they don't see it as that now interestingly neither do the young people themselves Is that because of our tendency as a society to victim blame? The victim must have had a choice or played some part in what happened to them. And being a victim means you're weak. Young people that we work with for six, seven, eight months, at the end, can answer every question perfectly, but they will not say, they'll say that maybe what happened to them was wrong. They'll be like, I'm not a victim though. It's like, I'm I'm not a victim. I'm not weak. It's, It's like, oh, well, that doesn't make you weak, but okay, yeah. I think in general in society, we have this connotation with victim as being weak. Yeah. I think I was brought up like that mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. where like, I'm not a victim because it means I'm weak and yeah. I'm strong and yeah. I can survive anything and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And what do you use as perpetrator then? Because you said that you don't use the term perpetrator either. Oh, it's difficult. I don't think we've got another word. I think we just try not to use it. Even the term harmful sexual behaviour, when we're discussing it with young people, we don't often say harmful sexual behaviour. We're a young men's service because as soon as you say harmful sexual behaviour to them, their backs are up. Yeah. Like, what? I didn't do that. And, I mean, an interesting way to, to discuss it is actually I was doing a session with a young man the other day um, and this young man is quite gang-involved and he can talk about things like stabbings and murder so freely. They just roll off the tongue. It's nothing to him. But he wouldn't even say the word rape. He kept saying an R charge. And I was like, why are you saying an R charge? What's an R charge? And he was like, yeah, Zach, you know what it is. You know what it is. I said, but say the word. And it's like, it's so scary to them to say rape because rape is, it's worse than, yeah, so it's, it's way worse than murder. So they just don't want to be known as like weak or a victim or anything to do with that. They just... As in like they will have been raped when they were yeah, younger. Yeah. So they would rather anything else happen yeah, any, to them anything. than them to admit yeah. that they were raped. Yeah. It echoes Paul's words back in episode three that some victims, especially male, would rather kill themselves or be seen as a perpetrator than admit what has happened to them. The shame that being a victim represents and the heavy burden it carries kills long after the abuse itself. Zach really hammered it home as to why we need to help children. Even the fact that I'm saying that makes me feel quite sad that we as a society don't take enough time to stop and think why kids behave in certain ways and that they will soon become adults themselves. How do they know what a healthy relationship is if they haven't been shown one? How will they have a healthy relationship with themselves if they've been shown that they're worthless? Children are sponges. They soak up their environment, whatever that may be. 
Zach started talking about the lower end of the behaviours he sees. They're just saying inappropriate things because they are just spending a lot of time online and just watching stuff that they shouldn't be watching. So they've learnt words and they're learning things that they, they have no other forum to share it. And they want to see what response they're going to get from saying it. Because the person online said it and everyone laughed. But how comes when I stood up in class and said it, I got kicked out of school. And the upper end. We do have young people that have either witnessed or have been victims of sexual abuse growing up. And their referrals tend to be a bit more extreme. They might have then gone on and repeated those behaviours. And it's because nothing was really done with them when they were victims of it. Either it was never really disclosed, no one really dug deep enough, and there was always kind of thoughts that it might have happened. Um, One example is a young person that he would have been very young, but his sister was sexually abused. And he... And I don't know what work was done with the sister because she's quite a lot older. Um, but from our kind of background checks and everything, nothing was done with this young person. It was kind of just assumed that, oh, he, it wasn't, didn't happen to him, so he should be fine. But then he went on and sexually abused a peer that he went to school with, but it was a younger person. And it's just looking at it. And when we got the case and we did kind of a background, we're talking to professionals that previously worked with them. It's... This young person, no one ever addressed what he witnessed. So he's then gone on and repeated the behaviours and it's because he thought that that was the norm. Well, he, even if he knows it's not the norm because he hasn't seen it elsewhere, in his mind, it's still something he witnessed. So it's learnt behaviour. He's still then going to want to show it. That was a really challenging case and it was really difficult for all involved to understand why he was showing these behaviours because they were, they were pretty severe and it rocked the school. But from our professional understanding, it was like... These behaviours were always going to manifest. It wasn't going to happen now. It could have happened in 20 years' time because he witnessed these things and no one had discussed it with him. We just put it under the rug and thought, oh, let's, let's not touch on it. And it- then, if you go a bit deeper and take it back a step further. Those parents have potentially been victims and it's just been a long cycle of it. We, with some cases, we get, I talk to workers that have been in the borough for 10, 15 years and they're like, oh yeah, I worked with his mum. And it's like, oh, okay. So this literally has just gone on for years and years and years and no one stopped it. And they're the cases that can be really, really difficult. So can you see how cycles happen? I mean, I was in a refuge recently and I met um, somebody who was in a refuge, but they were in a refuge as a child and then they were in a refuge as an adult. Yeah, It's, it's crazy and it's so sad, but you see it all the time. You see it and it's not even... I feel like... I saw it even before you come into this work because it's just kind of even kind of where I grew up. Like there's there's that family on the estate that have lived there forever and it's like even their grandparents were the people to know and that's it's like a continuous thing. You see with these cases, like whatever young person that's 14 and he's older brother that's 25 might have been working with youth offending 10 years ago and the dad is working probation now. Mum's also with probation and grandparents have a well that they can't go into the town centre. And it's just like a continuous thing that that family's been in. If we demonise young kids that are displaying what we label as bad behaviours, then aren't we just enabling this to continue? And in a way, turning them into perpetrators. And with that, creating a whole new group of victims like a revolving door. I ask Zach. People that might be working with a young person um, and telling them that oh, you're, you're a perpetrator. What you did was terrible. And that young person then believes it. 
they, they, they're not looking at the fact that they were a victim before. They're thinking, oh my God, I'm just a horrible person that does horrible things to people. And that's, that can either go two ways. It's either going to just kill them emotionally and they're going to become very depressed or even lead to self-harm or suicide. Or they're going to say, like, if that's what I am, then I'll be it. And they will then repeat the behaviours. But if you were to stop and say, you did a bad thing, but it's because a bad thing happened to you. And let's look at this and let's unpick it and look at why it's not a bad thing. Yeah, let's look at those behaviours. Unfortunately, it yeah. just it's so bad because it, it doesn't always happen. I think we're doing a really great job in the boroughs that we're in. But there's lots of other boroughs and there's lots of other cities outside of London where these things are just continuously happening. No one is really stepping in and helping them pick it. And like you said at the start, at an early level as well, picking up these young people and they're saying these things at... I mean, because we've done some work in like year six, um, working with like nine, ten-year-olds, picking up there and saying, you shouldn't have done that then, and helping them understand it. So that by the time they get to a secondary age or they start getting into relationships, they already know what a healthy and unhealthy relationship is. So they won't become a perpetrator and they won't become a victim. I remember five years ago, I worked with Women's Aid to try and get this passed through the UK government. At the time, I was doing a 250-mile challenge where I was running to and from 40 different English football clubs, encouraging men to talk about domestic abuse. On my third day of running, and it was tough, the House of Commons threw out our campaign to get healthy relationship education as mandatory in all schools, both primary and secondary. The government voted against it. I wonder if they listened to this and took time to understand it what they'd say now. I went back to speak to Professor Marianne Hester in Bristol. I felt like there was still a lot more I needed to ask her and see how this did or didn't fit in with what Zach was saying. I asked her about the resistance that surrounds healthy relationship education for young kids. Why do you think there's such a pushback for um, education around healthy relationships? Do you think it's almost like people are scared of talking about it still? I don't... I think I think that there are also um, a lot of sort of masculinist things going on as well. You know, it's it's not wanting to have a go at at male type behaviour, masculinist type behaviour. So, what about male stereotyping? Professor Marianne said abuse comes from gender inequality, and Mark, if you remember, in episode one said that men get a raw deal. What did Zach think? How damaging are those bravado, man-up stereotypes? And how, how, not just how damaging, but how do they lead to this kind of behaviours? Yeah, I think, I think it's possibly one of the most damaging things that we see with young men. I think this whole bravado thing, in the sense that a man can't show weakness and a man has to be hyper-masculine, you have to be able to fight, you can't cry you can't show any emotions other than um anger and happiness really if you show anything else and you're weak you're not a real man i think that's what we see it so much with these young men and we when, when we're discussing it with them lots of them don't even acknowledge it it's so entrenched in every male around them that they don't see it as a problem they just see it as that's how men should be and it, it's sad because it limits a lot of what they can do even if we're moving away from kind of harmful sex behavior you have young men that might be amazing singers or they might be great dancers but because it's not a male thing to do they won't do it because they'd, they'd rather limit their future and be accepted by their peers at that time and I think that's something that again as adults and as professionals we overlook how important that peer structure is to these young people and that's who they want to impress the mum and dad they're going to be there anyway 
but my my friends that's where I want to they I want them to think I'm cool that's how they get into a lot of these situations because they're just doing and that we I might be working with a young kid for a week or two and I already know in the first two weeks you're not a bad person what happened in that situation with that other young person you didn't do it from a malicious standpoint you did it because everyone's telling you to do it and that's what you thought you needed to do it seems that stereotypes of both genders do as much harm as each other so by alienating men and saying they can't be victims isn't that just going to make it worse for everyone Say for London created this project because they realised that their overall programme wasn't working at the root of the problem. We're working with these victims, we keep getting these referrals in, and it's because we're not cutting off at the source. We're not working with the perpetrators, so that's why we started our programme. And in boroughs like the two boroughs that we're in Brent and Croydon, we also have the Empower team in Brent and Croydon. So we're, often we're working with the young men that might have perpetrated these things that our female colleagues are working with these young women. So we can see how it all, all works out. And we can see that the perpetrators that we work with, that we have a successful closure with, they don't come back up. We're not seeing their name come back up amongst the victims. They're not saying it's happening because we're trying to cut off at the source. And it's so important because otherwise, if you don't, it's just going to be a cycle and it's going to keep going and going. How hard do you think it is to um, change a perpetrator when they're older, when they're in their <coughs> 40s and when they're in their 50s than mm-hmm. when they're a, a young teenager yeah. that don't really understand necessarily what they're doing or are reacting from being a victim themselves? I think it's it's really hard. I think even if you're not talking about something so big as um, as like kind of sexual violence, you're just talking about like diet. Like I, I went vegetarian and I remember kind of the older generations in my family like, what? Like, what are you going to eat? Like, they did not get it. They, they thought I was going to die. They were terrified. So trying to, like, that was just talking about diet and get them to change that. So getting a 40-year-old that has been a victim of abuse and has then perpetrated it for the last 20 whatever years, they're going to really struggle to change their behaviours. I mean, that makes sense, given we can all easily become stuck in our ways and beliefs. When I went back to see Rebecca, clinical psychologist, the following week, I asked her the same question at a sack and queried, isn't it harder to admit the longer time goes by that you've done wrong for a lot of your life? I don't think it's necessarily harder to become aware of it as you get older, but I think what you say is that, um, absolutely correct, that the further on you go with these patterns and the more that you've lost the harder it becomes to be able to face it and take responsibility for your own behaviour. If your pattern has been hurting other people, whether it's through not having the resources to care for your child or whether it's through a more um, clearly violent or aggressive behaviours, to face up to harm that you've caused or that your behaviour has caused is, is very, very difficult. Um, and understandably people don't want to do it and they struggle with it it takes a lot of support to do that so at least if we're getting people earlier they haven't had as much time to to have had that sort of impact yet Do you remember back in episode one, I'd been pushing for government money to go into early intervention as a priority. So the £8 million that's been committed through this strategy for children isn't anywhere near enough. There is no national strategy for early intervention. The money is distributed by geographical pockets 
meaning a postcode lottery, and it works out at about a tenner a child, which is what, five minutes of help or therapy? Domestic abuse costs Britain £66 billion each year, and that is a low estimate, as ironically, this figure doesn't include the impact on children. It hardly makes economic sense, never mind the basic humanity and love argument. It made me wonder if anywhere in the world does early intervention and has a low domestic abuse rate. When you dig a little bit deeper and you sit down with these young people, they're just, they're just a frightened young boy that doesn't really know what they're doing. Even if they've got all this bravado and they're walking heads held high, strutting, they're just terrified young kids that ultimately they don't even realise why they did it. They're just like... I just felt like I should do it. I needed to do it. And then you dig deeper and it's because of, it's because of a whole host of reasons. And they, they've really been let down by the people around them and the society that they are in that, that told them to be this male that goes and gets things and should be hypersexualized and all these things. And then when they do something, they're told that you shouldn't have done that. And they're like, what? Wait, what? This mixed messages. They're, they're confused. In Professor Marianne's research, she thinks in men, the fear isn't there like it is for women. The thing that stands out is that the women who are experiencing violence from men talk often about fear. It's, it's, it's a level of fear and being scared that you don't get so many of the men talking about. What you do get the men talking about is much more a kind of feeling abused because they're being made to do things that they don't think they should be doing. So it, for some of them it's more of a dent in their masculinity rather than it being really scary, fearful, kind of dangerous violence. For some of them it is dangerous, but mm. it's a much smaller group. I've met a few where I have really mm. seen that fear, yeah. like yeah. really. Yeah, and I'm not denying that that is the case, but it's just numerically it's different, you know. So we see that much more with women. We also see it men to men. Yeah, I've that, also met. Yeah. You see that men to men where where guys are in a relationship with guys and you see really heavy and scary stuff as well. Um, and you also get, you know, men to women and men to men, you, you get um, more physical abuse, more sexual abuse going on in relationships than you do where it's women to men or women women. I'm trying to make sure I have as much of an open mind as possible But working with David in episode one, there was a genuine fear that was just like Isla's. Daniel, Abel and Simon from episode two had spent years in fear, just like Sam. Paul had had his life dominated by fear. The young males that Zach is working with carry that bravado because of fear. Surely saying that men don't feel that same level of fear is just enhancing the very male masculine stereotyping that is said to be underpinning this in the first place. It's not exactly like I went out of my way to find the most fearful men. And violence is ultimately driven by fear. I was meant to have 30 minutes with Zach, but it ended up being more like an hour and a half. We both had our phones staring up at us because Zach's partner was about to go into labour any time now, and I was supposed to be clock watching. She kept sending reassuring messages over WhatsApp to Zach that all was okay. I thank Zach for his time and wished him good luck for the birth of his first child. Thank you so much, Zach, and good luck with your... Thank you. Thank you as well. (laughs) Thank you so much.
I switched my recorder off and as Zach was walking me out of his office and through the significantly large civic centre at Wembley, where they were based, he started telling me about a 13-year-old boy that had just been referred to him last week. The boy was in a relationship with a woman in her mid-twenties. I mean, I say relationship loosely. By law, this is child abuse, an adult having sex with a minor. When Zach met with a 13-year-old boy... He said he wasn't ending the relationship and there was nothing wrong with it. From the boy's point of view, he's got a gorgeous older woman and he was getting decent kudos amongst his peers for it, which counts for a lot at that stage in his life. Zach continued to tell me that the boy felt like he had to be the man of the relationship and take care of her. Let me just remind you, this is a 13-year-old boy with a mid-20-year-old woman. I recorded my thoughts as soon as I'd left Zach. Is that the majority of perpetrators against the young men are males, but they have had a couple that were women. Um, but Zach also said that that's something that no young man is ever going to say that they were perpetrated against by a woman because, well, how can they? But it's not just because they're ashamed of saying that, but they'll probably won't understand that it was a woman that <laughs> that it was abusive or perpetrator behaviour because it's from a woman because a lot of young men that Zach works with believe that you can never be abused by a woman because, well, they're a woman and I'm a man. The boys Zach worked with didn't think that a woman could be a perpetrator just because they were a woman. And the thought of being abused by a woman, well, that means they must not be real men. Doesn't this just prove how damaging gender stereotyping is for both female and males? If we don't start changing the conversation, I fear we're going to just continue going around in circles. I was back at home and have been having quite a few emails back and forth with the Ministry of Justice since my meeting with Number 10. They'd invited me to meet the National Police Lead of Domestic Abuse and then told me it would take some time to find a slot in her diary. So we'll see if and when that happens. I was sat at my laptop. I received an email this morning from the special advisor to the Prime Minister at 10 Downing Street and it's entitled Meeting with the Home Office and then bracket official bracket and this was the guy that I met back two months ago on the 12th of September and wanted me to present around domestic abuse. I was surprised and I have to admit, a little disheartened that I hadn't heard anything back from this meeting in September, back in episode three. Not a courtesy email or anything. It was now November 13th. They had said that they wanted to go away and think about it, as my case studies were powerful, and they knew there was a lot of problems with the system. One of the guys at number 10 even said outright that the CPS isn't working in this area. It's important to note that the CPS have had their funding cut by a fifth in the UK over the last five years. So the email goes, Dear Charlie, it was great to meet you a few weeks ago. Well, it wasn't a few weeks ago, it was two months ago. I'm sorry it's taken a while to follow up. Thanks for your time and sharing your insight as well as the heartfelt communication of the harrowing experience you've had. As policymakers, we are very fortunate to be able to hear from campaigners as passionate as you. And we have to use the privilege we have in devising policy and legislation to drive change as to improve outcomes for victims. Well, sounds good. The email goes on to, in the end, inviting me to have what he called a mutual exchange with a special advisor at the Home Office. 
The next day, quite late in the evening, I received an email from them. I'm slightly frustrated and a little bit shocked, to be honest. It's quite late on a Tuesday night and I'm on my emails. I have another email from the Home Office um, and this time it's from the diary manager of the Home Secretary's Special Advisor. And it says, could I please have your availability for half an hour next week? And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit like, how do I reply to that? Half an hour, half an hour to discuss the future of the domestic abuse bill. I felt so lucky to be in this position where I had the access and opportunity to get my voice heard and be the voice for many others. But I did wonder if it was all just lip service. I had been a member of this government advisory panel for nearly five years now and an ambassador for women's aid for 10 years campaigning around domestic abuse. I feel bad saying it, but I was losing faith. That didn't mean giving up, but just losing faith in system change with this approach of meetings after meetings after meetings. I had at this stage already presented the same serious failings that were repeatedly happening at least six times already over the last six months to the various decision makers. I felt like I just got moved on to the next person, even though it was that person's job that I just had a meeting with to follow the UK government's public commitment to tackle domestic abuse. I had not only presented the failings, but also the solutions and areas that needed to be looked at. But the more I got involved, the more I felt like there was a real reluctance for any significant change. I felt like even the basics weren't working. In fact, I'd proven to the government that the basics weren't working. And well, given the nature of UK politics, this wasn't the first cycle of ministers I'd worked with either. In the five years I'd been a part of the advisory panel, there had been four different ministers and Secretary of State, and each time we started again, right back at the beginning. I did get back to the Home Office and of course accepted the half an hour. I was told that's how this special advisor did all her meetings. She must be very efficient then. Roll forward from the 13th to the 26th of November and I was on my way to meet the special advisor, Olivia Robbie, at the Home Office for our 30 minutes in an attempt to sum the whole issue of domestic abuse up quickly, which is near impossible, by the way. Tanya, you'll have heard her name mentioned at the end of each episode of Undiscussable, helped me do this visually by making an emotions map of the journey of domestic abuse. We've laid out an emotion map which shows you the stages of domestic abuse and then kind of links up to the failings every time. So, and, and if basically there hadn't been these failings, then there could have been an intervention at each point which could ultimately prevent um, the cycle of domestic abuse, but also murder. You can check all this out on our Undiscussable page. Ad Arrived. I'm just sat in the reception of the Home Office and then um, waiting for my meeting and, yeah, kind of lots of things going through my head, like all the stories that I've heard and everything that's been happening and kind of having that emotion of actual quite anger and, like, I want to shake these people and knock a few heads together. Um, and I suppose I feel a responsibility for everybody out there that's being failed so get myself even more nervous 
All right, better go. Corley, see me on my phone, talking into it. Charlie, Charlie. Yeah. Hi, Kieran. Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm Olivia's PS. Oh, okay, great. I was taken through the glass security doors in a small space where the door shut behind me before the one in front of us would unlock. I was guided into a lift to a higher level and into a small meeting room in the home office. Sat there was policy advisor Charlotte Hickman. I'd met her before. I realised she'd been in the room when I gave my original presentation to the Ministry of Justice back in March. We chatted about the process of getting the domestic abuse bill passed while we waited for Olivia to join us. Well, does it have to go through the House of Commons and the House of Lords yeah, so, before yeah. it can get yeah. passed and then they have to vote on it? Well, they'll only vote if they don't agree. Oh, OK. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it has various stages. Hi, Olivia. Nice to meet you, Charlie. Hi. Nice to meet you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Olivia walked in the room. She was a lot younger than I'd expected and had a big smile on her face. She'd only been in a position for around six months. She started off by assuring me that this was an issue she was extremely passionate about and had been plugging away at the new domestic abuse draft bill, which at this point had yet to be published. Doing that alongside she said, quote, I have some great new commitments for how we can just step up our reaction to violence against women and girls. And we're also doing a paper on men and boys who've experienced domestic abuse as well. Okay. So lots going on. I was surprised she'd mentioned men and boys because I'd heard through a source of mine only the week before that it had been an afterthought to make sure males were mentioned in the strategy. I also found it curious how it's labelled separately. I spoke for at least 25 minutes running through the emotions map on my iPad. So my point is... There's just something really going on wrong here and here. Highlighting where interventions could have happened along the way and prevented a continuing cycle of abuse and in some situations, death. I tried to squeeze as much as I could in as possible, including my own story. My tactic was the more I speak, the more they have to listen or at least there's more chance of them listening and taking some of it in rather than them spending their time convincing me that all is rosy. But I really want to emphasise that it's not working. It's not coordinated. We got on to attitudes of domestic abuse. I think people don't even get domestic abuse. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I also find that very often... Olivia continued by saying... I hear people that really should know what they're talking about, referring to something called domestic violence. When you say to me domestic violence, that to me crystallises that you don't understand what you are talking about. You don't understand economic abuse. You don't understand coercive control. You don't understand leveraging people in a controlling way, using their children. You don't understand the full picture when you were saying to me domestic violence. You were thinking physical violence, and that is not always the case. Interestingly, when I was with the UN, they only used the term domestic violence. I was the only one who used the phrase domestic abuse. I've like made these like big squares and stars next to the word violence repeatedly because what I found very interesting was violence was the word that was used all the time. Not once did I hear abuse or coercive control or emotional or psychological or any other kind, I don't know, power, control, and nothing. It was just the term violence against women and girls, violence, sexual violence. I did challenge it, and one of the leads at the UN on violence against women and girls said to me that we know it doesn't just mean physical, as there are all types of violence. I said, yeah, we do, but a lot of society doesn't. And isn't it more important that we as a society have a clear understanding of what domestic abuse is? 
I never once met a victim that truly realised they were suffering domestic abuse, mainly because the preconceptions of a woman being battered didn't fit what was going on with them. She said in reply, we have to own the term violence. I just stood with a confused look on my face and again said that the public perception is what's important. She smiled at me in that fake way where people say, have a nice day, but you can tell they really don't mean it. It was clear to me that that was the end of our conversation. Interestingly, UK charity Refuge still used the term domestic violence as well. I questioned Olivia about attitude within the police and the fact that there is no mandatory training for the police in understanding domestic abuse. In fact, the independent inquiry in child sexual abuse interim recommendations was to mandate police in this area. Olivia said, I think what's happening somewhere along the line to public protection units, which I think should be the beating heart of the police stations, have become the unsexy thing to do in the police. Boys will be boys. They want to do counter-terror and whatnot. Mm, I'm not sure about that one. I personally think it's lack of education and the fact police, like society, still harbour incorrect views and stigma of domestic abuse. I keep seeing children who... Olivia said... Quote, I keep seeing children who are raised up in domestic abuse having other adverse childhood experiences that pops up in all my different policy areas. She also mentioned county lines and gangs and said it is bleeding into all these other interconnected crime types and added that they were seeing very often alcohol being a factor. What I'm trying to do is make sure all the work I do in the home office... And what Olivia is trying to do, quote is make sure all the work I'm doing at the Home Office is fed through a prism of thinking about adverse childhood experiences and what those outcomes are. I started to tell them about Zach's project within Safer London and how successful their results have been and asked why there wasn't a national rollout for something like this. Charlotte responded and confirmed what I thought about the £8 million that was ring-fenced for children. She said that there are pockets of that and that I was right it's not mainstream. So there are pockets of that, but you're right, it's, it's not yeah, mainstream. Nothing. Yeah. I made the point that whilst the work these projects do are amazing, how is it going to make a national cultural shift if it remains a postcode lottery? Charlotte and Olivia had to go. Olivia's assistant walks in the room. You too. I'll, I'll, I'll put you down. Okay, thank you. I've managed 50 minutes at this point, so well over my allotted half an hour. I secretly quite childishly, was pleased with myself. It's that competitive side of me that wanted to prove that it can't be covered in just half an hour. As I was about to be escorted out, Olivia pulled me to one side asking for a moment alone where we had a private conversation. I did push her a bit more about the small pockets of funding for children and the lack of early intervention. She agreed with me and said that she is committed to adverse childhood experiences but said the one thing she was worried about in the domestic abuse bill was this, and she wants to make sure children are at the heart of legislation. I don't want to break confidence, but I can say that one of the problems was that the department treat crime types as individual rather than linked. Olivia used the word silos. I later looked it up just to clarify what she meant. The silo mentality is a mindset present when certain departments do not wish to share information with others in the same organisation. Hardly effective in making change nationally. I said bye to Olivia and this time was escorted out of the Home Office. Thanks, Olivia. Bye, Bye. take care. I did the same thing I always do. 
So I'm just walking. <laughs> this is what I always do after I've been in these things because I have to walk it out. I can't just go and go somewhere else or sit down or go into something because I just can't concentrate otherwise. So I'm going to do my usual and walk around a little bit, have a think about what was said, make some notes, um, and then see what happens next. It was becoming a pattern. I don't really know like what to think or feel because now I always walk out and I think, yeah, that went really well. And then I don't hear anything and then nothing changes. Nothing happened and nothing came of it. Around seven weeks after this meeting, the domestic abuse draft bill was published to the public. The conversation we'd had around early intervention wasn't reflected in the bill. Children aren't at the heart of it and neither was the joint up approach that we talked about. If the Home Office knows all this, then how are they still getting it so wrong and are happy with this bill? This is just a typical example of dozens of meetings that I've had time and time again, and nothing changes. Having meetings is just having meetings where you don't even have enough time to barely scratch the surface, and it seems that everybody just pats each other on the back. There has to be a way. Things have to change. As I was working on this, Paul, who we met in episode 3's name flashed upon my phone. I couldn't stop smiling reading his text. Do you remember that I was trying to encourage him to tell his grown-up daughter about what had happened to him? He wasn't sold on the idea at all. He felt so much shame attached to the abuse he'd suffered. Paul's text said he told his daughter and that he now felt so much better for it. His text couldn't have come at a better time. He helped restore my faith in this journey and that discussing the indiscussable did and would make a difference. Something that I've battled with myself. He just made us scared. We just walked on eggshells. So by that time, I didn't even speak to my mum because if I spoke to my mum, he would attack her for me speaking to my mum. So we kind of became this, like, we had a system when, when he was in the house, we wouldn't speak because we knew it made it worse. Next time on Undiscussable. Here's the one who has made me hate. Him is the one who had reduced me to tears. Him is the one who has called me thingy for too many years. Him is the one who said I wouldn't amount to much and said I could never be. This is an essay I wrote for my GCSE English. I was 16 years old. Undiscussable is an independent production, investigated, hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, with production and editorial support by Tanya Hudson, with additional help by Ed Scott. Special thanks for this episode goes to Zach Kingston from Safer London, clinical psychologist Rebecca Honey and Professor Marianne Hester of Bristol University. Please head to charliewebster.com forward slash undiscussable for more details, help and support and please share.